Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, before we dive back in, I just want to pre-warn you that these episodes may be triggering or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators, and their behavior at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. And I believe it's important that we learn so that these horrific attacks and murders are not in vain. In fact, that's something all the victims' families I've met across my career share in common. We must remember and honour the victims by learning from their deaths, and that learning may well prevent other future murders. In fact, all my work across my whole career is about homicide and femicide prevention. Femicide, the killing of girls or women because of their sex. And it's important to challenge and correct the narrative, and I'll do that where necessary. I have to say that it doesn't always make you popular, but it's an integral part of being a victim advocate, particularly in this series, as many of the women are no longer here to do it themselves. Someone has to be their voice. I always say to people, I work for the victims, the victims who are most often women and have been silenced, blamed and judged, even in their own murders, and many of whom have become footnotes. We have to change this. So with that having been said, let's jump back in where we left off in episode three with Maureen Long, as sadly we have many more cases to discuss and analyse. But within only two weeks of Jane MacDonald's death, the police got a lucky break. A survivor. Maureen Long was then 42. She was a keen dancer. I used to love dancing. I used to go to, to Mecca at weekend and uh, do a lot of dancing. And well, I used to have a drink and enjoy myself and and everything and go around with friends, women friends. I was well known in town. Mrs. Long came out of the Mecca ballroom one summer's night in 1977 and accepted a lift from a stranger. Oh, all I remember was uh, trying to uh, pick myself up, 
grabbing hold of grass to try and get up. And I kept falling, and I wondered what was wrong with me. And I kept falling back, and as I was trying to pull, my, pull myself up, I fell again. And then I was screaming, and I, I heard this dog barking. And I heard someone say, oh, you're all right. And that's all I remember that night. When you get, get hit over head, at back of head, you can't remember things. So Maureen's attack was just two weeks after Jane MacDonald was murdered. That's hugely concerning. The fact that it was only two weeks that had passed and he was out hunting for more women. The message is that he won't stop until he's stopped, and so the police should have been throwing absolutely everything and everyone at this case at this point. No stone left unturned. Well, let's break down what actually happened in more detail. You heard from Maureen just now that she was attacked in the early hours of Sunday, July 10th, 1977. She'd been out the night before. It was a Saturday night and she'd met her ex and had four beers with him. Maureen loved dancing and so she made her way to the Mecca Ballroom in Bradford. She danced the night away until 2am. Maureen remembers going to the cloakroom, but very little else. As you heard, thereafter Maureen remembers only that she kept falling over and trying to get up and that she was screaming. What we now know is that she was approached by PS and offered a lift and along the way she said she needed to go to the toilet and so they stopped and she got out. She was then hit from behind on the back of her head and she passed out. Her male attacker then pulled her bra down to her waist and pulled her tights and knickers down to her knees. The next thing she was aware of was waking up in the intensive care unit at the hospital. Maureen didn't know what she was doing there. All her hair had been shaved off. She had no recall of what had happened. How horrific that must have been. Just imagine that. Step into Maureen's shoes for just one moment. You wake up, you have no recollection of what happened, and you don't know where you are when you wake up. Just that in and of itself is terrifying and traumatising. Maureen was in the hospital for nine weeks. She had a severe head injury. He'd fractured her skull and she'd had to have a plate put in it. He stabbed her five times in the front and side of her body and her left shoulder. One of them penetrated her liver. He also broke three of her ribs and left Maureen for dead. In fact, Maureen was told that if she hadn't have drunk the beer that night, she would have died of hypothermia. And it wasn't just the physical injuries that Maureen or Marcella had to contend with. When this man attacked them, he took their sense of safety, their very sense of security and peace of mind away from them, leaving them wondering what had happened and why had they been attacked by him. He left them traumatised, terrified and confused, wondering why, why them? Maureen didn't remember anything about him. He didn't rob her, nor did he rape her. But it's not known whether he masturbated at the scene either. Her clothes were examined, but nothing of significance was retrieved. Now, I don't know what they tested and what they tested items for, but it may have been that the attack was incomplete, and I suspect it was, and he decamped before he could do what he was really there to do. Or it may have been that semen wasn't tested for. 
It's hard to say, but in some cases I've worked, there are no forensics retrieved, even when everything has been thoroughly examined and processed. Although I have to say, more often than not, I ask questions about what was seized and tested and why certain items were not forensically examined. You see, it most often comes down to having a good CSI and detective and how they interpret the scene and what's relevant and what's not, as well as a sprinkling of luck. Sometimes the luck runs in favour of the offender, and I've worked some of those cases too. But of course it goes both ways. The more crimes a perpetrator commits, the more opportunities police have. But the more crime the perpetrator commits, the more they learn and their level of criminal sophistication increases. Because guess what? Newsflash, they don't want to be caught. And this man, as sure as eggs were eggs, did not want to be caught. How do I know that, you're probably asking or thinking? Well, let me tell you. He guarded against being caught at every opportunity. He knew when it was too risky and when to get out and leave, like with Emily Jackson, Marcella Claxton, and now in Maureen Long's attack. So again, it tells me he understands risk well and is taking necessary precautions not to get caught when it gets too risky, i.e. a dog barking, a dog alerting means that attention might be attracted or perhaps a dog walker is coming towards them or someone else comes on the scene. I also want to comment on a couple of things that are worth highlighting. You might think it was an interrupted offence where the victim, Maureen, couldn't remember anything including any details about the attacker. And given that there were no forensics recovered, then Maureen's attack doesn't take us further forward. But you'd be wrong. That's not the case here. For me, the very fact that he engages the women in conversation first off and offers them a lift in a car, in his car, is new to me and it's instructive. The way these offences have been described and characterised to me in the past was that he attacked prostitutes and he hit them over the back of the head with a hammer and a blitz-style attack, i.e. no interaction. Well, that's just not accurate, and you can start to see now why I always say the nuanced detail and the context of the behaviour is really important. I clearly know now that it's women he's attacking. Women who are available and vulnerable and alone and not prostitutes. But by virtue of the fact prostitutes are high risk, i.e. they're available and accessible and alone because of the sex transaction, the victimology makes them higher risk and it makes sense that he would target them too. But he is not exclusively targeting them. He's targeting lone women who are out at night alone. And the very fact he engages them in conversation beforehand tells me he is bold and that he's confident. The fact that the women engage back and get into his car points to the fact that he has the ability to put women at ease. He's unassuming and non-threatening, otherwise why would the women get in the car? It also tells me he's much more likely to be further down his criminal career, i.e. it's more likely he's done this many times before. He's well-practiced, well-versed. And I do believe that he understands vulnerability, women's vulnerability. He may even say something like, you know, it's not safe for you to be out here late at night. Get in my car and I'll give you a lift home to further lull them into a false sense of security and make it look like he's helping them, coming to their aid, and it wouldn't surprise me if he used a ruse like that and he'd get a kick out of it. But one thing's for certain, he's stalking the streets, preying on lone vulnerable women. He'd be called a predatory stalker present day, and I'll circle back to that momentarily. 
But let me just say something about vulnerability first off. You know, we can all be vulnerable at different times in our life and be at risk of being a victim of crime. So when we look at victimology, I analyze everything about the victim, where they were when they were attacked, what were they doing, what do they look like, what was their lifestyle, their career, their relationships, their personality, their habits. It's a deep dive to try and understand as much about their life, who they are, and find out why they were targeted and victimized by the perpetrator, and how and why and when their life intersected and interconnected with the perpetrator. In a series like this, I need to understand how he is targeting the women. So what's apparent to me is that he's picking women because they're alone first off. And sadly, that makes us vulnerable when we're alone. Also, some of them are in drink and it's nighttime or the early hours of the morning. I'm going to return to the day of the week and the time, the temporal analysis, as there's an emerging pattern which I've noticed. Have you noticed anything? So due to that trifecta, the women are at higher risk, i.e. more vulnerable, being alone at night, probably with very few people on the streets at that time. So the streets are quiet and she's further isolated. The alcohol means slower cognition, instincts are dulled and reaction time slowed. He would know all of this. And again, this is not about victim blame in any way. Women should be free and able to walk the streets at any time of the day or night without any threat of violence. That's the point. But unfortunately, that's not our experience of the world. From a young age, girls are taught not to walk down alleyways alone, not to take shortcuts that look risky, not to go out late at night on your own. In fact, most women, if you're anything like me, have to risk assess literally everything that we do day and night because of the risk of male violence. Like when I'm up at 5am and I see a male runner in the dark running out on the street and I'm envious because that will never be me. I have to wait until the sun comes up. My choices are much more limited and men rarely, if ever, have to think like that. Girls and women and boys and men, we move around the world very differently because of the constant threat of male violence. And that also tells you about the prevalence of male violence in and of itself. And I know that whatever's reported to the police is just tip of the iceberg, as most violence and abuse is largely underreported. I'll talk about this another time, perhaps, because I don't want to lose my train of thought here, but it's relevant. That context is relevant. So what I'm trying to explain and articulate here is that predatory perpetrators see and hone in on all of this. They exploit it, and it talks far more to a manipulative, exploitative and dangerous perpetrator to their psychology and their behaviour rather than anything else. So let's just think about the perpetrator's psychology for a moment. Remember when I said in episode one, a skilled offender would target a particular victim in a particular location at a particular time for a particular reason? Well, that's exactly what I was referring to here. He is a skilled offender. He understands vulnerability and risk well. He was prepared to wait and bide his time for the right victim to come along. Not you, not you, not you, but you. Perpetrators like PS also work on a risk matrix. And that risk matrix of decision-making is opportunity versus availability versus accessibility versus desirability. If the desirability is strong and the need is great, and much of this behavior is need-driven for the thrill, the power and control, the utter dominance and domination and the sexual high that's achieved because of that, 
They will go to a hunting ground that is likely to be a target-rich environment, and they will stalk that hunting ground and wait for the right victim. Not you, not you, not you, but you. So I would opine that P.S. would most likely be a voyeur and a stalker, a watcher of women in target-rich environments, hanging out in red-light districts, watching women in bars and clubs and pubs, cruising the roads late at night near clubs and pubs and watching women come out, fantasising about what he was going to do to them. He would have done this and played it out in his head over and over and over again, thousands of times across many years he would have played it out until his first in vivo tryout. In vivo is Latin, it means real life tryout, when the fantasy becomes the reality. And as I said before in episode one, Wilma McCann was not the first victim in 1975, and we're going to go back before Wilma. I know there are many other cases worthy of further scrutiny and analysis, but we're not going to go there just yet. So what did I mean by predatory stalker? Well, let me tell you about that. You see, predatory stalkers usually stalk for brief periods of time. They take pleasure in the watching, the observing of the victim, in the knowledge that they know the victim's fate when the victim is oblivious. This gives them a sense of power and control over the victim, and the predatory stalker behaviours are really a means to an end. The end attack on a victim is almost always sexual. We'll return to this. However, if you want to read more about stalking and stalkers and their victims, I recommend the book Stalkers and Their Victims by Paul Mullen, Michelle Pathy and Rosemary Purcell. And the other point to note is that part of his MO, his modus operandi, was that he was in a car in all of the attacks thus far, stalking the women and then offering them a lift. So the car is important, right? Well, it should have been very important to the police in terms of prioritising lines of inquiry relating to the car. Remember, the police did have the tyre marks from the park where Irene Richardson was murdered. There were 50,000 possible cars that could have had those tyres, and three quarters of the cars on that list have been traced. This is a huge line of inquiry. It's resource intensive, and it's a really important line of inquiry. And the team was steadily working their way through that list, and to get three quarters of the way through it, that's no mean feat. However... The senior officers took a very peculiar decision and they decided to discontinue this line of inquiry. All the police had to go on were the perfect tyre prints found in the park where Irene Richardson died. Officers had established a list of 50,000 possible cars and spent nine months trying to track them all down. A huge task, three quarters completed when senior officers made a disastrous decision to abandon it. It was decided that we hadn't the manpower to run two murder inquiries and a tyre inquiry with a diminishing return from the tyre inquiry. That was an unfortunate decision. That was Detective Superintendent Dick Holland talking. And what he said was an understatement. It was an absolutely disastrous decision. It wasn't just unfortunate. But for the sake of balance, this is a huge line of inquiry, and I guess they may have felt that the tyre prints that they had, they didn't know 100% that they belonged to the attacker's car. But the question that I have is why do three quarters of that 50,000 possible car list and not finish it off? That makes no sense to me. It means that all the work thus far was for nothing, a waste of time. And let's face it, 
The tyre mark and the boot print were the only things they had thus far forensically, and so it should have assumed even more importance in my opinion. And what message did that send out to the officers working on the investigation, who did all this hard legwork for nothing? I would imagine that it was totally demoralising and would no doubt impact on the morale and the trust and confidence that those officers had in the senior officers who were making these decisions. Moreover, and more importantly, this was yet another missed intervention and prevention opportunity to find and arrest P.S., whose car was on that remaining uncompleted list and find him before he killed again. However, using that same car, P.S. travelled to a new city, Manchester, and attacked another woman. Now, for reference, Manchester is across the Pennines. It's about an hour and a half away from Leeds. And on a Saturday, on the 1st of October, 1977, 21-year-old Jean Jordan was out in Mossside when P.S. picked her up in his car. Jean had two children, two boys who she left with a babysitter after 9pm to buy some cigarettes. But she never returned. P.S. offered her a lift and asked for business, and they drove to Wasteland. He gave her £5 for sex, and then when they pulled up, she got out of the car. She was hit over the back of the head. A car was parked next to them. P.S. only realised when the headlights turned on, but he had to wait for them to go before he could leave. He was almost caught. Nine days later, Jean's body was discovered on October the 10th, two miles away from her home. Jean was naked and her clothes had been scattered. She had 11 injuries to her head. She had many stab wounds to her breast, chest, stomach and vagina. Her own intestines were wrapped around her waist and the killer had attempted to decapitate her. Yes, you heard that right. Her head had almost been detached from her body. How utterly horrific, and I'll come back to this. The sequence of injuries were believed to be that Jean was hit over the back of the head, followed by being stabbed, followed by an attempt to decapitate her. Her handbag was also missing. Greater Manchester Police took the lead on this case because it was in their jurisdiction, and the Senior Investigating Officer, or the SIO, was Chief Superintendent Ridgway. Now, he believed that Jean's body had been moved and that the perpetrator had later on returned to the scene to look for her handbag. It was then, he believed, when he returned, that he tried to decapitate Jean. And yes, this did look like a different crime scene, much more violence, and that decapitation, well, it might look like different behaviour, but Chief Superintendent Ridgway still, however, thought it was linked to the West Yorkshire murders, and I would have to agree with him. He formed the belief that the perpetrator was intentionally trying to make it look like a different crime, and that's why he tried to decapitate Jean. Well, that, along with the rage and frustration that P.S. felt at not being able to find her handbag when he returned, seemed to me to be the most likely reason for all the injuries to Jean's body and the attempted decapitation. Chief Superintendent Ridgway met with ACC Oldfield to discuss the case. ACC Oldfield was not keen on linking the offences. He wanted to keep it quiet and on the down low. However, someone on the inside team felt differently and they alerted the media and the media put it on blast. You know, leaks happen. They happen in most major investigations and you always have to plan for them. That's something that we've learned. However, the police didn't plan on it happening here. 
In response, they decided to put out a statement telling women to take cars from now on, i.e. travel in vehicles, and told them not to go out alone at night. Again, I just want to pause and take a moment to say what a ridiculous message that is. Why focus on women and their behaviour? Their behaviour isn't the problem for crying out loud. It's male violence that's the problem. And that should always be the focus, always. And sending a message to the perpetrator, preferably by catching him and sending the message through your actions and not your words. Plus, it's not possible if you're poor, if you don't have money, not to go to work, or if you don't have a car, or it's not possible not to see your friends. I mean, how out of touch is that and how isolating? So once again, it only serves to shrink down women's worlds. Their worlds are made smaller because of male violence, whilst men can do whatever they want and their behaviour is left unchecked. You see, I'm just not having it. Absolutely not. It's just not good enough to keep sending messages out to women about changing their behaviour as if that's going to change the perpetrators. So this may have been well-intentioned at the time, but really they should have saved their energy and focused on the linked investigation and finding the killer. I mean, just one point, perhaps they should have focused on the tyre line of inquiry. That would have been far more productive. Or how's about curfewing men? It would appear that they shouldn't be out on the street, as male violence is the problem here, and that should be the focus. More on this in later episodes. On the 15th of October, two weeks after Jean's murder, there was a significant development. Jean's handbag was found 189 feet away from her body. It contained a new £5 Bank of England note, which was thought to have been paid to the victim by the killer. The recovery of this note was important, as it was also newly minted. Chief Superintendent Ridgway had the presence of mind to start a track and trace on the brand new note, having spoken with the Bank of England using its serial number. The £5 note had the serial number AW51121565. The Bank of England helpfully agreed that they would reprint the notes and track the distribution of it. This was great. This is an excellent line of investigation, and it eventually paid off. They traced it to Clark's, where P.S. worked, and within weeks of Jean Jordan's murder, they interviewed P.S. Detective Constable Howard from Greater Manchester Police and a Detective Constable from West Yorkshire Police interviewed P.S. at his home on the 2nd of November 1977. P.S. denied ever visiting Manchester, except for work, and the last time he was there was about a year before, he told them. When asked where he was the night of Jean's murder, he said he'd been at home all evening and had gone to bed at about 11.30pm. He was also asked about where he was on the evening of the 9th of October. He said that he and his wife Sonia had been at a housewarming party at their new home. Sonia confirmed that they were together on both of these dates. The £5 note inquiry continued and officers revisited Clark's, the company PS worked for. P.S. was interviewed yet again by Detective Constable Leslie Smith from West Yorkshire Police and Detective Constable Rain from Greater Manchester Police on the 8th of November 1977. And thereafter, the officers spoke with his mother, who confirmed that he was at the housewarming party. However, they didn't examine his car nor its tyres, but they did examine some footwear and home tools. Now, P.S. was actually number 76 on that list, being 44th of 49 employees from Clark's, 
Officers were told to check the list with the nominal index list the Milgarth Incident Room had. P.S. was on it, but next to his name was written N.T., meaning no trace. I'll come back to this. This is a very important point. But there was another breakthrough moment in the case. A set of tyre marks were also recovered at the scene. These tyre marks would later be shown to match those found at Irene Richardson's murder. But of course, that line of inquiry, tracking the other cars and their owners on the list, had been discontinued. So I bet P.S. couldn't believe his luck. They interviewed him twice, and then nothing happened. For the police, that was two more opportunities to catch him missed and squandered. Yes, this is a large-scale investigation, but as I always say, you have to make your own luck in investigations. No case ever just falls in your lap, and so P.S. was left unchecked and unsanctioned to harm another woman. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy, and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Marilyn Moore was 25 years old when she was attacked by P.S. She was out working on the evening of the 14th of December 1977 in Leeds. It was a Wednesday night, around 8.30pm, when she got into P.S.'s car. They chatted while she was in the car with him. He told her his name was Dave and that he knew a couple of prostitutes who were friends of his, called Gloria and Hillary, he said, and he asked if she knew them. She didn't. They drove to an industrial ground in Leeds. When they got out of the car, he hit her over the back of the head from behind. She was knocked unconscious by the side of the car. Another vehicle with a couple came in it, and obviously the car spooked him. He jumped back into the car and left at speed. He left tyre marks there too when he left in haste. Three of those tyre marks were a match for the tyre marks found at the Irene Richardson and Jean Jordan crime scenes. Marilyn was shown and sat in numerous cars to help jog her memory and eventually she picked out a Morris Oxford when it was actually a Ford Corsair that he was driving. But she did do a very good photo fit, which was similar to Marcella Claxton's photo fit, 
yet the police didn't compare the photo fits for some reason. Marilyn also told the police that he was a white male with dark curly hair, a beard and a dark moustache. He had brown eyes and he was softly spoken, she said. Marilyn Moore survived the attempted murder on rough industrial ground in Leeds. Her evidence should have offered vital new clues to Detective Superintendent Dick Holland and his team, especially about the car the killer was driving. They got out of the car, presumably to get into the back seat, when he struck her blows on the head with a hammer. As she slumped at the side of the car, another vehicle with a coupler came in and obviously disturbed his activities. So he jumped back in the car and sped off, turning to go towards the road and the exit across there. As a result, he left curved tyre marks rather like the ones you see on the ground behind me. Three of the tyre marks were identical to those found near the bodies of Irene Richardson and Jean Jordan. Police sat Marilyn Moore in all 22 possible models of car. She picked out the Morris Oxford. She was wrong. It was a Ford Corsair. She did make a photo fit which was, with hindsight, astonishingly accurate. But then she started accusing innocent men. Police decided she was unreliable. Unfortunately, we followed the wrong line here. We ought to, in retrospect, to have followed the photo fit and uh, not followed the car because she got it wrong. So yet again, another disastrous decision taken by police, unfortunately taking them off in the wrong direction. And there's a couple of other points I want to highlight here. Marilyn had eight separate injuries and Professor G believed a hammer had been used and so he believed this was linked to the other attacks, i.e. they were all committed by the same perpetrator. And I have no doubt about that either. Marilyn also told police that the man who attacked her knew Chapeltown well. He knew the back streets. And so this again would indicate that he was a local man. And Marilyn doesn't say anything about the fact that he's got an accent. She doesn't say that he's an out-of-towner, nor do any of the other women, which again implies to me that he's local. You know, back then, people didn't really move around as much. Communities tended to be static, and so out-of-towners tended to stand out. And there was an inherent distrust going back in time. But the fact that all these women felt at ease points to me that he was similar to them, i.e. he sounded the same, and voice and tone also plays a role. So what does this all mean? Well, to me, it means that he's local. And the police believed that when he said his name was Dave, that that was his real name, and they spoke to a thousand-plus men named Dave. Yet the tyre inquiry and the photo fits were ignored, and they followed the Morris Carr line of inquiry instead. Now again, in a major inquiry like this, of course you have to prioritise lines of inquiry, and this is a major investigation. But I would imagine that they could have eliminated the Morris based on the tyre tracks. And I have no idea why they wouldn't have put Marcella and Marilyn's photo fits together and compared them. They were eerily similar. You'll see them on my social media. And that's really a basic line of inquiry. Compare and contrast the photo fits, the e-fits, the descriptions of the suspect. And in some cases, like the Omaha bombing, 
there was a composite photo fit put together with success. And again, this is something that one of my mentors, the former Deputy Assistant Commissioner John Grieve, a career detective, that's something that he taught me. And we've done that on numerous cases in the past. Again, it's one of the first things that I do. I look at the pictures of the suspect, their descriptions, and I also like to see pictures of the victims to see if there's anything that stands out about them in terms of targeting. Victimology is always critical. It's the start point. Ted Bundy targeted women with dark brown hair and fringes or bangs, as they're called in America, and Levi Belfield primarily targeted blonde women. And your living victims, the near misses, those who survived, the survivors, they're your best resource. And of course, you have to have the caveat if you've linked the right cases. And talking of linkage analysis, there's another really important detail about this case that you need to know about. After Marilyn's photo fit appeared in the newspaper, 16-year-old Tracy Brown was sat with her mum reading the paper. She turned to her mum and pointed at the photo fit of the man who attacked Marilyn and said, that's him, that's the man that attacked me. Now, Tracy was attacked by a man on August the 27th, 1975. Well, here's Tracy to tell you more. One of his first victims was a girl of 14, attacked in a village called Silsden near Bradford. She was approached by Sutcliffe and chatted to him as she walked home after playing with friends. It's like it happened yesterday. I just went to turn around and just uh, thank him for his company. And next thing I knew, he was pitting me five times on the head. It knocked me down. A car came down, disturbed him, and it threw me over this fence here. And I remember him running off. I could actually hear it now, running off. And uh, I just clambered around the fields um, just to try to get somewhere where I'd be safe. And there was more. Tracy had been out with her twin sister Mandy. They were walking home via the lanes to their farm. They had a 10.30pm curfew. They had to be home. That's the curfew that their dad had set. Tracy stopped to take her platform shoes off. They were hurting her feet and she sat rubbing her feet and her sister walked on. And a man started to approach. A white man, aged between 20 to 30. And as he drew level with her, he said, there's nothing doing in Silsden, is there? And she replied, no, not really. He then asked her name and she told him it was Tracy. She asked him his name and he told her it was Tony Jenis. He asked if she had a boyfriend as they continued walking along together. She told him she did and she lived in Silsden. Tracy said she felt comfortable with him because he seemed unassuming and quite charming. She also said he was softly spoken. He asked her where she lived and she told him Home Farm, which was about half a mile away from where they were. They walked together for about 30 minutes and at times he would drop back and he'd blow his nose or tie his shoelace, but they continued chatting away. Just as they drew level with the gate to Tracy's home, she realised he'd dropped back again and as she turned round to thank him for keeping her company, the words hadn't even left her mouth when she felt something crack down on the back of her head. He hit her five times on the head, grunting each time as he made contact with her skull. Tracy pleaded, please don't, please don't, as she fell to her knees, but he continued to hit her with a lot of force. She never lost consciousness, though, and the next thing she knew was that he'd picked her up off the ground, he'd put one arm around her waist and threw her over the barbed wire fence. 
and suddenly a car appeared along the lane and it obviously spooked him and he ran away. That was the last thing Tracy could hear was his footsteps echoing as he ran and Tracy could barely see. It was dark and she was covered in blood but somehow she got up and she managed to walk to the neighbour's farm and she banged on the door and fortunately an old man was there and he gave her comfort and took her home. Tracy was lucky to be alive, and her actions showed such determination and a strong will to survive. I mean, that's mental fortitude right there. What a survivor. What a fighter. What a warrior. It's really astonishing that she survived this attack. She later said it had been a full moon that night, and she could remember a lot about the details of the attacker. She said he wore a taut V-neck jumper over a light blue shirt. He was around five foot eight. He had dark brown, almost black, Afro-type wrinkly hair and a full beard. He had a gap between his front teeth. His voice, she said, was a little insipid for a small man, and it was a high voice. And she recognised that his accent was local, but it wasn't particularly strong, and he wasn't menacing in any way. He just seemed like a friendly guy. But Tracy couldn't shake the thought that he'd been watching her for some time. Okay, that's quite a lot to take in. So some key points to highlight. Tracy was 14. She was a child. He engaged her in conversation. So he asked her whether she had a boyfriend and he knew that she did and he knew that she wasn't a prostitute. That flies in the face of the theory he was attacking prostitutes yet again. She said that he was polite, softly spoken and unassuming. He spent 30 minutes with her and then surprise attacked her from behind. He had a gap in his front teeth, afro-like hair and a beard, and he had very dark eyes, she said. She's very clear about the description. Well, she did spend 30 minutes with him. It was believed that she was attacked by him using a hammer. She was 14 at the time. I just want to underline that. Defenceless and vulnerable. And he did that to her. It's not clear what the police did in terms of the investigation, but crikey, a stranger attack on a lone female, a 14-year-old child in a remote area as brutal as this. I mean, I just have to be absolutely clear. This man intended to kill her. There's no two ways about it. He only stopped because a car came on the scene and would have seen them, and he threw Tracy over the fence like a sack of potatoes. This was an attempted murder, and it should have been a priority. And then when Wilma McCann was murdered, links should have been made because these offences, as I continue to say, are rare. And I mentioned that Tracy and her mum saw the press article two years later about Marilyn's case. They saw the photo fit of Marilyn's attacker and underneath the article it said, if anyone knows him, please come forward. And so they did. They did the right thing and went to Keefley Police Station. They tried again with the police and they took the article with them. They spoke to the young police constable who was on the front counter. Tracy's mum told him that her daughter was positive that this was the same man who attacked her. The officer looked at them both and said, well, we're all having fun and games today, aren't we? And then handed Tracy a form to fill in. I mean, what sort of attitude is that? No, there's no fun and games when it comes to women and girls being brutally attacked and murdered. It's no joke. What a tone-deaf and patronising thing to say. Totally inappropriate when they were reporting something very serious. That's absolutely unacceptable. But perhaps this provides a further insight into how male police officers treated women at the time.
Tracy's mum was quite rightly angry about his attitude and a detective passed by and calmed her down and took their details. But they never heard from anyone again. There was no follow-up. How disgraceful. Tracy said that they didn't take her seriously and she didn't know why. Maybe it was her age, she said, but she always felt she'd been attacked by P.S. She knew it in her gut, but she was just dismissed. Again, totally unacceptable. They could have stopped P.S. in his tracks if they had properly investigated Tracy's case. But the police failed to follow up. They failed to check and compare Marcella, Marilyn and Tracy's photo fit with each other. They would have seen that they were incredibly similar and nor did the police tell Tracy about an attack on another woman, Olive Smelt, just 12 days before her in Halifax. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On Friday, the 15th of August, 1975, 46-year-old Olive Smelt was on her way home. It was around 11.45pm. She'd been out for drinks for the evening with friends. She and a friend were then given a lift from the pub to the chip shop where they jumped out the car. Olive then walked the short walk home. Her husband Harry was at home waiting for her. A man caught up with her in the alleyway close to her home and commented on the weather. He said something like, the weather's been letting us down, and then he struck her twice on the back of the head. Olive fell to the ground. He slashed her twice just above the bottom. A car came down the road and the headlights spooked P.S. He ran off. Olive thankfully was found in the alleyway and was rushed to Leeds Infirmary, where she had emergency brain surgery. She would spend the next ten days in hospital, she described her attacker as in his 30s, 5 foot 10 in height, of slight build, with dark hair and a beard. So okay, here we have two lone females walking home alone at night in isolated areas, but in close proximity to each other. Both were engaged in conversation by a man of similar description, who suddenly and repeatedly hits them over the back of the head, and the perpetrator in both cases only stops when a car appears on the scene. Both offences were interrupted, and they were close geographically. They're effectively either side of Bradford, West Yorkshire. Look on the map I've posted on social media. You're going to be shocked, and you're going to feel exasperated. I mean, for crying out loud, how many women needed to be attacked before they were taken seriously and properly investigated? 
Women being hit over the back of the head from behind by a stranger, these are rare events, and I'm alarmed that these attacks were not prioritised or linked. Okay, so I'm taking a few deep breaths here, and I know you need to process all of this too. So let's take stock for a moment on what the police knew up until Marilyn's attack in December 1977. So stay with me here. So what's apparent to me is that the killer was not targeting prostitutes. He engaged the women in conversation first off, and he was polite and unassuming and even charming, and he would put women at ease. They also knew he was local. He had a local accent. No one said otherwise, and they would have if he was from out of town, and he knew the areas he was driving around in. He knew the back streets. So the police should have taken all of this into consideration when interviewing potential suspects. Let's think about the evidence the police had up until this point in the investigation. The police had good photo fits from three of the A1 victims, Marcella, Marilyn and Tracy. These women are hugely important because they survived, they are survivors, and they're the only ones who had seen him. Why were they not compared to each other? Also, using the photo fits to actively check and compare against the men they were interviewing, that was important. Why didn't they do it? Now, I don't have a definitive answer, but what I can tell you is that the photo fits were very similar to each other, and P.S. was a dead ringer for them. He was white had a dark beard, a moustache and a gap between his front teeth. The police also had the tyre marks that matched across three crime scenes, Irene, Jean and Marilyn, and so this should have been the number one line of inquiry, but it was discontinued. Why? Who made that decision? If they had continued, they would have found P.S., who owned a Ford Corsair at the time. The police also had the £5 note from Jean Jordan's murder, which should have been a priority. Police tracked it to originating from a number of potential businesses, which included Clark's, where P.S. worked, and they interviewed P.S. twice. I wonder whether they asked what car he drove, and did they know that his colleagues at work called him the R-word because he looked like the photo fits, and he was interviewed a number of times, and what's more, P.S. responded to that nickname, and it was a running joke, apparently. I mean, you really can't make this up. And you see, community intelligence is really, really important. And then there's the size 7 boot print, which was found at two of the A1 crime scenes, Emily Jackson and Patricia Tina Atkinson. Did they check the boot size of the men that they were interviewing, i.e. all the car drivers and men at Clark's for size 7 boots, as well as owning a car that was on the list, which included Ford Corsairs? P.S. was a size 7 boot, and he worked at Clark's as a long-distance lorry driver. Why didn't they piece these things together? And then there's the geography. Because they should have realised he was local, the locations of the attacks themselves are really important. You see, I'm a reflector and a stickler for detail. So taking all of the above into account, there are some other nuanced details about the attacks that jumped out at me whilst I was walking along the beach and I started to develop a hypothesis. I posted about this on social media as I want you to be with me at each stage and understand my thought process. And it rarely happens on a nine to five basis. You know, it pops at all hours. I never stop thinking about a case. And so I'll share my hypothesis with you, building on all the other key points we've just taken stock of. 
You see, up until Marilyn's attack, there were six attacks on the Saturday night and the early hours of Sunday morning. Marcella was attacked in the early hours of Sunday morning, Jane the early hours of Sunday morning, Irene was attacked late on a Saturday night, Patricia Tina Atkinson late on a Saturday night, and Maureen was attacked in the early hours of Sunday, and Jean was late on a Saturday night. Now I believe that all of these attacks, including the ones in the early hours of Sunday morning, that they are part of his Saturday night activity, and that the attacks he committed in the early hours of Sunday morning, I believe that he was on his way home at that point. Now, a note about Jean Jordan's attack, which was on a Saturday night. I believe he did kill and mutilate Jean, but this case in Manchester is what I would call an outlier. Manchester is a totally different city, and I believe he was trying to take the heat away from his locality and his home address, which further reinforces my theory that geographically speaking, these other attacks are more significant. So my hypothesis is this, that if you map the attacks on the Saturday-Sunday excluding genes, you would have the catchment area of where the perpetrator lived. You see, from working these cases, I also know from experience that offenders tend to offend in the areas that are familiar to them in the earlier part of their criminal career. And so I was excited to put this hypothesis to the test. And I mean really excited to see what it showed. And even before I started my analysis, I had asked Chris Rowbottom from Syndicate, who does all the amazing graphics for crime analysts, shout out to you, Chris, to help me map all the A1 and A2 offences, as I wanted to see what they looked like geographically and whether they revealed any hidden patterns. And I also wanted you to see the visual too. I then asked him to prioritise the Saturday-Sunday attacks up until December 1977, the last one being Marilyn's attack. Another interesting side note here is that Chris lives in Yorkshire, so he has local knowledge I can draw upon, and he's done me a favour and also taken some other pictures of significant locations. More on that in other episodes. You know, it's always good to have boots on the ground, and you have to be resourceful and use critical thinking when you're a crime analyst. Chris agreed to map the Saturday-Sunday A1 offences separately, along with PS's home address, and I eagerly awaited the ping of the maps arriving into my inbox. And when the email arrived, I clicked on the map and guess what I found? Boom! I was bang on. These attack locations are extraordinarily close to his home address. Like Patricia Tina Atkinson's and Maureen's are incredibly close. And what's more, they're close to his work address in Shipley. In fact, if you drew a circle around the offences, you would have the area in which he lived. Take a look for yourself on Crime Analyst IG and Twitter. And then I wanted to add in Tracy Brown and Olive Smelt, and so I asked Chris to add them in. I always thought that his home address would be in the apex, the very centre of the map, and guess what I found? Double boom. I was bang on. You can check the maps for yourself be prepared to be blown away like I was. Now this illustrates yet again how important the nuanced details are and how you interpret these details, and in particular what's significant, i.e. what you give weight to and what you don't. Now some of you have probably lost your mind by now at this point, others of you may well be thinking, well how might you use this information? Because it's not a specific address. Am I right? Well here's a few examples. You could do some targeted stops on vehicles in that area, and you could also use the photo fits of the suspect and the boot size. 
And when you're interviewing potential suspects, you can timeline them and see who was available to commit the offences at those times. And also importantly, check those details against their home address. Is it within the catchment area? You can start in the apex of the map and do house-to-house door knocks with the priority criteria in your hand and the photo fits in your folder to compare men against that you speak with. This would be my favoured approach first off. And you'd give them a clear briefing that this killer is polite, unassuming, controlled and controlling. And a stronger steer still to disregard the whole notion, I would know him when I see him BS, that I see creep in in every major inquiry that I've worked and ask officers to stick to the priority criteria, local man, unassuming, polite, quiet, softly spoken, the type of car the tyre marks may belong to, lives in the hotspot, looks similar to the photo fits, size seven boots, works at Clark's or one of the other 33 potential local businesses, that came into the £5 note inquiry and couldn't be eliminated. So this is why you need clarity about the offences that are linked and the behaviour informs the type of person you're looking for and the criteria used to TIE, potential suspects. Now TIE stands for Trace, Interview and Eliminate and that's why you have to work up a priority criteria grid system so that everyone knows who and what you're looking for. And one more thing to throw into the priority criteria on the grid would be previous convictions and or intelligence, i.e. the non-convictions. Now I know that hindsight is twenty twenty, but I'm confident that I would have opined that he, whoever he was, if I was working this inquiry, would most likely have had a history of violence and violence against women and girls, most likely unconvicted because we know convictions are rare for violence against women and girls and therefore the intelligence is always key. I underline this over and over and over again in all my training and also in my campaign work. So they should have checked the history of each potential suspect that they interviewed. P.S. had come to the attention of the police before in 1969 for an attack on a prostitute. Yes, you heard that right, 1969, so six years before Wilmer, and the police gave him a caution. You see, that's the sort of intelligence I'm talking about. The victim was never named publicly because she didn't want to proceed with a prosecution. She was a prostitute and most likely she was fearful and didn't trust the system. But P.S. had hit her over the head with a stone and a sock and almost killed her. She reported to police and she had the Austin minivan vehicle registration plate that he was in. Police tracked him down via Trevor Birdsall, and it was Trevor Birdsall, his mate, who suggested that they spoke with P.S. And when they tracked down P.S., they spoke to him at his home address, and he admitted it and told them that they had had a drunken argument. They warned him not to do it again and gave him a caution. Now, a caution is a criminal record. The perpetrator has to admit to the offence, and that caution should have been recorded in the police files. And this should have been recorded in the intelligence file too. And what's more, I bristled with anger when I read that, that he'd been given a caution, and it sounds like the intelligence hadn't been included in the file. I mean, for crying out loud, the fact that she reported the attack to the police tells me she knew he was dangerous and she didn't want him getting away with it, probably because she knew he'd harm others. Women don't always feel they can support a prosecution because they're scared, but they give intelligence, i.e. information for the police to act upon. When men are violent to women, women are fearful. And so she reported it for a reason. As I always say, 
We don't have a living witness and a murder inquiry, and so you should build the case using other evidence, and yet the police did nothing. He effectively got a slap on the wrist. What message does that send out to him? The fact that there was no real-life consequence for his actions, the message to him that he reads is carry on. And carry on he did. On Tuesday the 30th of September 1969, PS was back in the Manningham area. Now remember I mentioned Manningham in the previous episode? Well, that was in relation to Patricia Tina Atkinson's murder. She was picked up in Manningham's red light district by PS and murdered by her in her home address in Manningham, Bradford. That was on Saturday the 23rd of April 1977. You see, there's the connection. Well, on Tuesday the 30th of September 1969, a police officer notices a Morris Minor car with its lights off and the engine running in Manningham. The beat officer approaches the vehicle, and as he does, the driver drives off at high speed. The officer calls it into the local control room, and a search was begun of the area, looking for the car, and they eventually found the car parked up half a mile away. There was no one inside it, but the engine was running. P.S. was eventually discovered crouched down behind a hedge with a hammer in his hand. Asked why he was in the Manningham Red Light District with a hammer in his hand, he said a hubcap had flown off his car and he was trying to find it. Well, the police didn't buy it. They didn't believe his explanation and they arrested him and charged him with going equipped for theft. What a curious crime to arrest him for. I mean, I find that baffling. It's better than nothing, I suppose, but it doesn't explain what he was really doing. And he should have been charged with possession of an offensive weapon at the very least. And what about the dangerous driving? And why didn't the previous attack three weeks before on a prostitute ping? Why didn't that flag? That would have shown P.S. in a very different light and given a different perspective on the type of man he was, but it didn't flag and it didn't ping. And he was photographed upon arrest, and one month later he was fined £25. Now the other thing it reveals to me about P.S. and his behaviour is that he's quick to think on his feet when challenged, and that he would no doubt be stopped in future dangerous and reckless driving and or drink driving type scenarios. I mean, the fact that he drove off at speed when a police officer approached is instructive about his behaviour. That should have been a big red flag. But there was no mention of the hammer, or his reckless driving, or the attack on the prostitute, no join up in the police files about P.S.'s behaviour, the context was missing. So that's two more contacts that the police had with P.S. and two more opportunities to make the links and stop him. It's really unconscionable. It's exactly why I'm campaigning for police to proactively check the histories of stalkers and domestic abusers. They must put more intelligence on the databases about the context of the offence and the perpetrator's behaviour in order to identify serial perpetrators and risk manage them through problem solving. I call it the Al Capone style of policing. Al Capone was convicted for tax evasion, not organised crime. The same problem-solving approach should be applied to the most abusive and violent men. It must be a coordinated and joined-up national approach because perpetrators travel. This is exactly what we started doing in the Metropolitan Police Service when I worked there in 2003 following my report entitled Getting Away With It, a profile of the domestic, sexual and serious offenders. The link to this report is in the show notes if you want to read it. 
We took a proactive evidence-based approach to domestic abusers and stalkers for the first time in the country and indeed the world, and it worked. I made the recommendation in the report to mainstream this approach based on the evidence, and I'm still saying that now in 2021, and I'm still saying it because it hasn't happened. And yes, there are some pockets of good practice in the UK by some leaders, but it needs to be mandatory and a national approach for all police services for it to work. You see, I strongly believe it's not women's responsibility to deal with or problem-solve violent men. It's the police's responsibility and the prosecutors and the courts. It's the state's responsibility and that's where it firmly sits. They must join this up. They must make the links and stop letting violent and abusive men like PS off the hook. As we're now seeing in this case, and I've seen it in a thousand more, perpetrators escalate their behaviour. They become emboldened when they get away with it, when there's no real fear of consequence or accountability. You know, some have even said they're untouchable, they're above the law. Yes, they really say that. That's exactly what Levi Belford said. And then they go on to harm more women. And then there's a review and recommendations of the lessons to be learned are made, but they rarely are learned. The same mistakes have been happening year on year since PS and women pay with their lives. We have to make violent men visible and accountable. We have to stop them. And you can sign my petition for this to happen, which is also in the show notes. So please be an activist. And so what all of this means is that I strongly believe they should have stopped PS and arrested him in 1977 at the very least. And that's being generous, as really they should have been onto him in 1969 and they should have closed his behaviour down. But by December 1977, so much more was known. But the police didn't make the links, they didn't follow up, and they didn't conclude key lines of investigation. And so nine more women were attacked. But in reality, I know that it's even more. So just think about that. That's intervention and prevention right there. And I also believe in terms of the investigation that this was a critical turning point. P.S. had now been spoken to twice more within weeks of Jean Jordan's murder, with no mention of the 1969 offences. You see, he would have realised that the police had no clue what they were doing, and also that he could talk his way out of anything. Now that would only have served to further embolden him. He most likely got a kick out of that, the whole, I know something you don't know of it all. And sadly, more women would die and be harmed because of the police incompetence in this case, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It really is egregious, and I'm trying to be balanced here, but there's not much to work with, as these are very basic errors that were made right from the start, and I have to call it as I see it. And as I always say, if it starts badly, it will end badly. And there were these old white male senior officers thinking that they knew best, when in reality, they didn't have a clue. And that's only the half of it. Things were about to get a lot worse. So I'm done for now. I literally can't take any more. I feel nauseous. When I started off this episode, I didn't know I was going to have a number of light bulb moments, and I wanted you to hear them as they happened. It really is an organic and dynamic process when you get into flow. And of course, I'm recording it step by step. So I've been working very long hours piecing this together, thinking of nothing else. Because as I said, the devil's always in the detail with my work, the nuanced behavior, the context and the granular detail. And I have to take time to reflect 
I'm an introvert and a reflector. I have to make time to think in my process. And you see, some things aren't relevant to other people, but they pop for me. And I want you to hear what's popping at the time that it's popping. And it's now very late on a Saturday night and I've been working all the hours. And the other thing I know that it's not an easy listen either. And it's not an easy process. You see, I'm absolutely raging. This case is so anger inducing and I'm trying to keep my swearing in check. It's giving me cognitive load, the whole thing, the wrong decisions being made at every turn, literally every turn, every opportunity the police had, they wasted it and they missed it. They said that luck went against them, but in my opinion, you have to make your own luck in investigations and I've not seen a case yet that just falls into your lap with a nice pink ribbon and a bow on it. It takes legwork, good judgment, experience, leadership, and you have to believe women. You see, women paid with their lives in this case because the police had no clue what they were doing and they dismissed the living victims, the survivors. And what's more, they failed to call in people who did know what they were doing, experienced detectives from New Scotland Yard, and that's on them. How many dead women was it going to take? Seriously, Everybody should be enraged about this. And I firmly believe because it wasn't happening to men, it was only women, and that their egos got in the way and weren't in check because they were men, that this killer was allowed. He was literally green lit to kill over and over and over again. And that's on them, the senior police leaders. Heads should have rolled. Yep, yeah, you see, I told you it's late and I'm tired. I'm tired of all the BS of this non-investigation and blundering buffoonery. And I told you this case is just as relevant now as it was 40 years ago, as violent and abusive men are still getting away with it. Women have to matter more, and violent men must be made visible and accountable. So please be an activist for the women who are no longer here, and also to protect future women. Please sign and share the petition in the show notes. Okay, I'm really signing off for now. This is a lot to process, I know. There's a lot for you to think about and I've given you some tasks to do as well. So be safe, stay healthy, and I hope you'll join me back in the Intelligence Cell next week for part five of The Forgotten Victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written and produced by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering is by Jesse McEwen from Tanziasta Creative. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom from Syndicate. And the music is by Kilroy.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.